Thank you, Church, for uh, extending the invitation here. Um, preaching is something that's uh, uh, a big responsibility. And when Mr. Paul asked me, uh, he asked me a while ago, actually, maybe he um, didn't abuse very much for that. But because of the schedule, uh, at that time I was uh, visiting my school, and I'm still in school. I'm about to enter my last semester uh, for the program and working at the seminar full time. And because of that, I felt that I want that you know, sufficient time here. And I want to be able to, to prepare, uh, uh, give sufficient time for this. I spend time in the word, praying, and consecration. Uh, and so at the time uh, came a few, few months ago, and I told Mr. Paul that I can be here uh, at this time. And he, uh, and he graciously accepted my invitation. So, I mean, my acceptance. Uh, before we before we begin into our Bible study, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this moment, Lord. And we ask and we please thank you, Holy Spirit, Father, for I am only a vessel. Uh, may the words that rested upon my mind come. Through my mouth, Father, will only bring glory to your name. Please hide me behind the cross and help us listen to your still small voice. This is me, right? Amen. Okay. So, right now it's 11 38, and I've asked Mr. Cole, Mr. Cole told me that sermon can be up to two hours. It's not two hours. Uh, I asked him for a time frame and he told me that. Uh, 45 minutes basically at max and I make sure that the sermon uh, will end by 45 minutes if not totally there. So the title of the sermon is, is this love. Uh, and this title, this sermon came about as I was studying um, the Bible a while ago and the thought of love came to my mind because love is something that the word has been passed around uh, carelessly nowadays. For example, I would say I love pizza, right? Or I love going here, I love going there. Uh, but what about what does the Bible say about what a true love is? And so the key verse that I've chosen is John 15, verse 13, which is greater love have no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. So you can turn your Bible to Genesis 3. And we're going to dwell upon Genesis 3 from verse 1 to verse 19. But to introduce this topic, I want to first talk about the tragic love story of King David's son, his firstborn. What is his name? Actually, uh, that's, that's another father. So King David's firstborn, his name, uh, his name is Amnon. Yeah, Amnon is the firstborn. Yeah. And in 2 Samuel 13, you don't have to go there. Uh, there's a predicament that Amnon found himself in. He was in, he was in love with his half-sister, Tamar. And in, Samuel, in 2 Samuel 13, emphasis on verse 4 and verse 15, the Bible says, this is uh, Amnon speaking to his cousin named uh, 
unto to his cousin, and he said, The cousin asked Amnon, Why are you the king's son so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? So Amnon said to his cousin, I am in love with my sister Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. So Jonadab, which is the cousin, said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please have my sister Tamar come and give me food to eat. And have her prepare the food in my sight so that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So a plan of deception was introduced to Amnon, Amnon by his cousin, and he took on that plan. And we know the plan of deception was not new to this world. Deception has originated with the devil himself, beginning in heaven. And so the very same principle, Amnon is implementing his plan. He pretended to be ill. King David visited him, and he did just that. He asked King David if his sister can come and bring him food. So he did. He asked his sister Tamar to bring food to him. And then what happened? If you remember the story, he then asked everybody to leave, and it was just him and his half sister, and he violated them. To be more accurate, he raped her. Just on verse 4, he expressed to his cousin that I am in love with Tamar. But yet, he raped her. So from the love that he professed, that's contradicting with the action that he had. On verse 15, then, it revealed to us the desire of his heart. It says that then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. Indeed, the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. How is that possible? How is that possible that somebody who professed they love her, he loves her, and then he raped her and now he hated her? So then the question is, is that love to begin with? Now, I know this is a very extreme example of what is not love. Clearly, we know what Amnon experiencing here is simply lust. Not love, even though he used the word love. And so, with that extreme example, let's go into a more subtle one. So, let's take a look in the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden on Genesis 3. Verse 1 to verse 3. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, the serpent, which we all know at this moment the serpent was already possessed by Satan himself. And the serpent said, Yea, had God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the trees of the but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So question. How did the serpent initiate the conversation with the woman? What did he employ? What did he use? He used a spiritual thing, which is a part of the command that God has given to Eve. But what's the command that God has given to Eve according to what the serpent is saying? You shall not eat of her of every tree of the garden. Is that what God said? So the serpent began by simply arousing curiosity onto the mind of Eve, asking a question that seemed to be innocent. 
And Eve, not realizing she is now within the trap of her enemy, her first mistake was she engaged with the enemy. But this brings us a very good lesson, brothers and sisters. At times, we expect Satan to come unto us with a great temptation out of the left wing, things that we never experienced before. But don't think like that, because the enemy will rarely use that kind of tactics. What the enemy uses is something that we are familiar with, something that has that hold dear in our hearts. That's the one that the enemy used to provide the temptation towards us, the things that are familiar to us and least expected. So Eve, in her mistake, she engaged the enemy by having the dialogue, and not only that, she added God's words. Because in Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17, God says, you shall not eat from that tree. But on Genesis 3, Eve said, God had said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. So Eve added, God never said, you cannot touch it. God simply said, don't eat it. But Eve added, no wonder in Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, Moses said that you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I command you. Because at times, brothers and sisters, perhaps when we add words into God's own word, perhaps adding words simply by adding our own interpretation and holding on to dear, holding on dearly to our own interpretation of what the Bible is, we're straying away from the word. That's why it's very important as we study the Bible to study in its context, to study the original intention. What is the author? What is God? What does the Holy Spirit want to teach us? Because as we added our own interpretation, straying away, and we know it's contradicting with the Word of God, I believe this is why we have so many denominations nowadays. But yet we all have one Bible, right? Well, not true. Now there's many translations of the Bible, but the point is that the religion of Christianity, one of the mockery from other religion is that how could be a religion that's based on one Bible but yet has so many denominations. Granted, the very same principle also exists in many different religions. There are different sects within Muslim. There's different sects within Hinduism, Buddhism, right? But nonetheless, how can we preach that God is love, God is one, but yet we are so divided as believers? Now, from the study of great controversy, we know that the enemy had a plan, and that plan of the division is what has brought into the church to begin with, beginning with the origin, with the beginning of time. And so I know, now until we go on to verse 4 and verse 5. So after Eve has engaged with the enemy, when the enemy first slowly approached Eve with simple question, now, since Eve has engaged the enemy, what did the enemy do? Look at verse 4 and verse 5. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. So think about that for a moment. From asking a question, and now the enemy went straight on, head on, by contradicting what God is saying and putting out blatant lies. By saying that you shall not surely die. When God has said in second in Genesis 2 verse 17. The day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now of course there's so many lessons that can be unpacked here. That involves the spiritualism. But that's not the topic for today. 
But here the enemy straight forward and said that you shall not surely die. On verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as God's moon. So not only the enemy is telling a blatant lie of what God has commanded, and now the enemy is painting a wrong type of image of who God is. Because what type of God is it that the enemy is painting? Look at verse 5. For God knows in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened. What is the enemy painting of who God is based on his statement? What type of God is God? From the statement of Lucifer, when Lucifer said that, in, for God knows in the day you eat, your eyes shall be opened. That God is someone who holds something good from us. Now, isn't it that's the, the one of the lies that the enemy put out after for us? That God doesn't really care for us. That he holds something good from us just so we can suffer. Is that true? No, that is not true. Because in Spirit of Prophecy has said that. God has declared that man's only means of safety is entire obedience to all his words. We are not to make the experiment of testing the evil course with its results. Meaning that God never intended for us to experience evil. In the book of Patriots and Prophets, in the story of redemption, in the, in the early chapters, Spirit of Prophecy pointed out that God sent his angels and God himself, Jesus himself, would sit with Adam and Eve and relay the event that has happened in heaven. That there will, be, there will come a time when the enemy, Lucifer himself, will come and try to deceive Adam and Eve, will come and tempt Adam and Eve. The story has been laid out, the fact has been laid out, what has happened. And God's intention was never for Adam and Eve to experiment evil on their own. Isn't it true for us also? You know, when growing up in the church, I remember one of my desires in the growing up in the church, one of my desires was I wish I could taste the world. I wish I could pick up a habit of smoking or going to a club or using drugs or whatever it is. But I thank God that God has helped me not to experience any of those wickedness. Because guess what, brothers and sisters? Is the temptation of smoking applied to? No. I will never know the hold of smoking in someone's life. Personally, I will not know. I can tell how the hold is to somebody else. A family member who's struggling, trying to let go smoking years after years. He had tried to let go. He would drop smoking for months, but only fall into remission. Time after time after time, that hold on him is so great that it's hard to let go. And that is why God never intended Adam and Eve, including us, to experiment evil on our own. God wants us to do, to trust his word. Trust this is what happened. You don't want to feel the other side. And you know, if you think about it, that concept is not new. You know, growing up, um, of course, we have stove at home. And at times, you know, my mom would be cooking. And what do you think my mom will tell me because I'm reaching out onto the plane? What would she tell me? Will she tell me, go ahead, touch it? No, she would tell me, don't touch it. 
right? Because what, what's going to happen if I touch the flame? Right. Now, however, as a boy who never had the experience of being burned by a fire, I have to make a decision. Will I trust my mother or will I try it for myself? Find out for myself. Now, the, the command that my mother told me is true. Don't touch the flame because it will burn you. The command is true. But it is up to me as a little boy to take that commandment as true or not. If I were to take it as true, then I will know I will not go near that flame unless if my mom is there cooking. But if I don't take that commandment as true, then I will try experiment on my own, reach my fingers onto the flame and being burned and feel the pain, and then I would know it. But wouldn't it be easier if I would just trust my mother? Wouldn't it be easier if you just trust God when God says, Thou shalt not commit adultery? When God has said, Thou shalt not bear false witness. When God has said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. For I am the Lord your God who has brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Hasn't God liberated us from our Egypt, from our sins? God has done just that. So let's take it to heart and trust Him and make no experiment or testing of the evil force because God knows what's best for us. So now continuing on to Genesis 6, the enemy, after Genesis, Genesis 3 verse 5, the enemy has run full straight ahead. And in Genesis 6, we'll see the result of that engagement that Eve has with Satan. Verse 6, and when the woman saw that she was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. So the question, did Eve trusted what the enemy had said? Yes, or else she would not have acted on it. And if you notice, before she acted on it, what did she do? She contemplated. Now, temptation is not a sin until we act on it. Just as Eve contemplated on that temptation and prompted her to act on it, we should not spend time contemplating on any temptation. We are treading on a dangerous ground. When temptation comes to our mind, run to the scripture. Do not spend the time thinking about it. Because this is what happened with Eve and then she acted on it. Now, question, was she deceived? Yeah. Yes, she was deceived. But, was she spared from the penalty of that deception? Yeah. No. She was not spared from the penalty of deception. Because we know how the story ended. We know what happened, that both of them have to leave Garden of Eden. But let me ask you, ultimately, what was her stand toward the words of God? Towards God's commandment, when God says, don't eat from that tree. You can eat from every other tree, but don't eat from that tree. So by her acting on the temptation and partaking on the forbidden fruit, ultimately, what was her stand towards the word of God? What was her stand towards God's commandment? Did she believe God's commandment or did she not believe God's commandment? Right. She disbelieved. Eve 
believed the words of Satan, but her belief did not save her from the penalty of sin. She disbelieved the words of God, and this was what led to her fall. Comfort and courage, page 15. So Eve knew, well, Eve had no idea that she was being deceived. But what about Adam? Now, at the end of verse 6, it says that, and she, after she partake of the fruit, she gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, my question to you is, if Eve was deceived, what about her husband? Was her husband, Adam? I understand why at times we would think like that. However, from the, stu from the study of the scriptures, from the story of prophecy, you don't have to turn your Bible there, but in 1 Timothy 2, verse 14, written by the Apostle Paul to a young Timothy, the Apostle Paul says that, and Adam was not deceived. Yes, Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, that this part in itself, it's a whole different sermon that can be unpacked as for a personal and Bible study. And I encourage you to do that. Because the question that you have to wonder, what happened? Why? How could Adam not be deceived but yet still partake from the fruit? For the sake of time, we're not going to get into the details on what happened during that time, but we're just going to focus on the subject of the sermon today, which is on love. Because in the book, Story of Redemption, page 36, paragraph 2, this is the mindset of Adam when he saw as Eve was approaching him. Adam regretted that Eve had left his side. Same thing with us, my brother and sister, we should never leave the side of Christ. When we leave the side of Christ, we'll be on the devil's ground. Adam knew now he must be separated from her whose society he had loved so well. How could he have a dust? His love for Eve was strong. His love for her was strong. And in utter discouragement, he resolved to share her faith. What is her faith? Genesis 2 verse 17. You shall surely die. He reasoned that Eve was a part of himself. And if she must die, he would die with her. So how could he bear that thought of separation from her? Now, I was going to ask, is that love? But before I ask that question, let me ask you. Who is Adam's father? God. Ultimately, as the story will unfold, as we go that all of you know, ultimately, what is the plan of redemption? Dying on the yes, dying on the cross, where Jesus dying on the cross, sacrificing himself for us, right? And Adam is God's son, and the son bear traits of the father and mother, right? And here, just as Jesus is willing to sacrifice himself, Adam is doing a similar thing. Adam was willing to sacrifice his life for his love. Just as Jesus was willing to sacrifice his life for us. But there's a big difference, isn't it? There's a big difference that tells us that the principle of sacrifice has to be, has to be based on certain thing. And that certain thing, it has to be based on the truth. We cannot risk our unity 
has to be based on truth. Our unity cannot be based on lies. But in fact, if you remember, one of the ecumenical movement of the church now is to bring unity. Now, I am all for unity. But we do have to remember that unity has to be based on the Bible. Because look what happened with the early Christians in the church. As they tried to unite with the world, but yet they remained true to the Bible, what happened? They sacrificed a lot. Because the world cannot be in line with the Bible's teaching. Because who is the prince of this castle? Who is the prince of this air now, today? It's still Satan. That's right. It is still Satan. And one thing, God cannot lie. Amen. God cannot lie. He is true. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Right. So now, after they have partake on the fruit, on verse 7, he said, their eyes were both open, and they know that they were naked, and they sewed big leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of God. You know, at times when we sin, as we kept, as we contemplate upon sinning, we think upon the good things that would happen to us, the instant gratification, the high that would happen to us, but we don't contemplate upon what would happen afterwards. The purpose of sin by the enemy is to simply separate us from God, just as Adam and Eve now running away from God. Now think about this also for a moment. How much time have they spent with the serpent? Not long. Very, very little. But how much time have they spent with God? Longer than the time they spent with, with the serpent. How much has God given them? How much has God shown them? Yes, a lot. How much has the serpent done for Adam? But yet, why did Adam and Eve believe the words of the serpent who haven't done anything for them? And that's, I know, it's ridiculous. But brothers and sisters, we could be like that as well. We would take the enemy words and hold it dear to our heart when they haven't, the enemy haven't done anything good for our sake. While God has done everything to save us. It doesn't make sense. And that's what sin is. Sin makes us think illogical. God wants us to think logical. He knows what's good for us and he wants us to trust him. And on verse 9, And the Lord God called Adam and said unto him, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, God said to Adam, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree where I commanded you that you should not eat? So here's a question that Adam is being confronted. What was Adam's answer? Yes, exactly. Now, <clears throat> think about this for a moment. Yes, few verses before, what was Adam willing to do for his wife? Yes. But now, few verses later, when we confronted with the truth, what is Adam willing to do? Yes, he's willing to throw her under the bus. Just before he was proclaiming his love for her, I love you, I'm going to die for you, let's do this together. But when the rubber meets the road, when the feeling is away, 
All that is just your logical thinking that you know you have done something wrong. He resorted to his own selfishness when he was trying to be selfless earlier, but now he blamed Eve. And not only he blamed Eve, he blamed God himself by saying, the woman that you gave. We all, we, we have heard of this story. We have heard of this one. But it's incredible to think from the perspective of love from a man who's willing to die for, for his wife and now is willing to throw her under the bus. And that is what sin does to us, brothers and sisters. The moment we resort unto sin, the spirit of accusation begins in our hearts. Because this is what, from the thoughts of the month of blessing, page 126, it says that this is what human nature will inevitably do when uncontrolled by the grace of Christ. Meaning, without the grace of Christ reigning in our hearts, we just can't help ourselves to sin. Now, we may not rob a bank. We may not kill somebody. We may not violate anyone. But according to the Bible, a sin is a transgression of God's law, however little that is. So even though we're not inclined to the highest cream, uh, 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 crime as what Hitler had demanded or the Red Army in China demanded, but yet we in our own ways have one of those cherished sins. Could it be a sexual sin? Could it be a hatred sin? Could it be anger? Could it be the tendency to lie? Could it be judging others? And when I'm judging others, I'm, I'm talking about judging your own salvation. You know? It could be one of those. And that's what we are in for if we don't have the grace of Christ in us. I'm about 15 minutes left. And so we cannot indulge on sin. We cannot indulge in the idea of temptation because there is nothing good for us. So after Adam had blamed his wife, then God turned to his to Eve. And God says on verse 13, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did. It's as Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent. And then on verse 14, so really quick, did Adam show what a true love is? Is that love? No, that is not love. Absolutely not love. And on verse 14, and the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly thou shalt go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Okay, verse 14 and 15 is when God began with his judgment. But if you notice, on verse 9 through verse 13, God was dialoguing, right? Who was he speaking to on the, on the previous verses? He was, he was interrogating Adam and Eve, right? On verse 9 to verse 13, God was asking Adam and Eve. But on verse 14, God spoke to the serpent right away and cast the judgment. Do you notice, do you notice one thing? Do you, do you notice something here? What do you notice? God asked Adam and Eve, what did you do? Did he do that to the serpent? No, he did not. Because God knows 
Satan knew very well of what Satan was trying to do. There was no argument, there was no conversation, there was no dialogue with Satan. And if you think about it, that's the very same principle that Jesus himself manifested in the book of Jude, chapter 9, when Jesus was not willing to dialogue with Lucifer about the body of Moses. But rather, Jesus said, Say it again. Yes. Amen. Say it again. Time to go to the Bible. Yeah, the Lord will be with you. Yes. Now, before we go there, so Adam, so God has cast the judgment. He's first casting judgment onto the serpent. He hasn't cast any judgment to Adam and Eve. After God has cast the judgment to the serpent, on verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. So after God has cast the judgment to Satan, what did God do next? He hasn't cast the judgment to Adam and Eve yet. What did he do next? Here on verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. What is God saying here? Yes. And who's going to fulfill the promise? God himself. So God himself, before casting the judgment to Adam and Eve, God says, this is what I will do for you. Even though you have betrayed, you have betrayed my law, you have betrayed my commandment, but this is what I will do for you first. By saying that, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, you shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God knew what's going to happen. Jesus, now we know from the story of redemption, from Christ for prophet, the moment the, the moment Adam and Eve fell into sin, the plan of redemption came into place right away. There was no second thought. It was never an act of thought. God already made that plan. God knew this is going to happen. And so he had made a provision right away. And when this happened, God immediately said, I will put that enmity between you and the woman between your seed and my seed. Is that love? That is love. When God is willing to sacrifice his own life for someone who's undeserving, for us who's undeserving. I wonder, in Isaiah 53 verse 5, he says that, But he was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Before we do, and of course, we all know Romans 5 verse 18. What does Romans 5 verse 18 says? While we were yet sinless. No, while we were yet sinners. And that concept is kept is foreign to us. When we do something to others, we always contemplate what's in it for me. We calculate in our mind, what can I gain from this? But Romans 5 verse 18 tells us that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for our sins on the cross. And so that is love. In the book of Desire of Ages, page 22, it says that the plan for our redemption was not an act of thought. It was a revelation of the mystery which had been kept in silence through times eternal. It was an unfolding of the principle that from eternal ages 
have been the foundation of God's throne. God did not ordain that sin should exist, but he foresaw its existence and made providence, provision to meet that terrible emergence. And so, as our scripture today read, John 15, verse 13, Jesus himself rightfully says, Greater love had no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. Because, brothers and sisters, only by love can love be awakened. And that true love can only be based upon a principle. That love cannot be based on feelings. It cannot be based on feelings because can we trust our feelings? What does the Bible says about trusting ourselves? Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is the sinful above all things. And yes, desperate. Amen. What does the Lord Amen. Only the Lord knows our heart. Only he can try our reign. Do you know what the desperately wicked means? A long time ago when Pastor Sanger uh, was uh, was the youth pastor at church, we would go to the beach every so often on during summer days. And we would go to Balboa Beach. And I remember one day, the wave was quite high. And to my, you know, uh, interpretation, it looked like a 10 feet high wave. Now, 10 feet high is not from where I'm standing. It's where my head is, because I'm on, in the water, right? So as I'm looking up, it's 10 feet above me. So then, as I was looking at the wave, the wave hit me, I was tossed to and fro in the water. Let me ask you, when I was tossed to and fro in the water, being hit by a wave, do you think I was thinking about, what should I have for lunch on this? No. Uh, what do you think my main goal was? Yes, so then I can't breathe. So was I desperate for that breath of air? Yes, I was desperate for that breath of air. And the Bible says that our heart is desperately wicked, which means at any given moment when we have the opportunity to express the wickedness, we will do just that. The one thing that restricts us from, from expressing the wickedness is the law of the land. Not because we love our brothers and sisters that I don't want to hurt them. But it's because the law of the land tells me that if I steal, I'll be in prison. And that's why we need the law. Because we don't understand the wickedness within our heart. But Jesus understands that love is a principle. And so, so White said that true love is not merely a sentiment or, or an emotion. It is a living principle. A principle that is manifest in action. True love, wherever it exists, will control the life. And what is it then that should control our life? What is the sign of the true love? We know John 14 verse 15 and John 15 verse 14. Jesus said, you are my friends if you. Yes. And John 15 verse 14, if you love me. Because obedience, brothers and sisters, is that sign of that true love. Because we're following what God wants us to do. But ultimately, God in His mercy knows that we cannot follow, we cannot keep His law. And therefore, God wants His love to be written in our hearts. Isn't it true that in this land, there is a law, a provision in the law that protects babies from being harmed by their mother? Right? Mrs. Cole, do you need that law? Do you need that law to tell you that's how you need to, to take care of Clint 
and Cassandra? No. Even if the law doesn't exist, you would know what you need to do because that principle of the law is written. And so also God wants his law to be written in our hearts. And no wonder in Galatians 2 verse 20, the Apostle Paul says that it is not I, but Christ who lives in us. As we spend the time on the word of God and meditate, and as we have Christ, his, the word of God, dwell in us, then his principle will reign supreme, supreme. And that principle of love will dictate our single action and motivation. Father in heaven, we thank you for this moment where we can speak briefly, Father, and study briefly upon what a true love is that you have manifested for us when you have died for our sins. So we have the ask over them. Please help us to spend that necessary time with your word day by day. So then, O oh Lord, may your principle be written in our hearts. That as we come in contact with others, that may be able to see the love in their goodness. Thank you so much for hearing us in our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.